Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Think about what you toss in the trash in a day, a week, or a month. Most of it's food, right? In 2018, the EPA estimated that more food made its way into landfills and incinerators than any other type of trash. Coming up on Seasoned, we're talking with people who help us understand food waste and its impacts, and also its potential. Later in the show, you'll meet a New York City chef on a mission to turn excess restaurant food into meals that nourish the community. And Connecticut Public's Patrick Scahill shares his reporting on the state of food waste in Connecticut and New England. There are effective strategies and opportunities that we can adapt from other states. But first, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about food waste? How much is out there? And what can we do about it? Chef Plum spoke with Katie Hart, Operations Director at ReFed, a national nonprofit dedicated to ending food waste in the U.S. Katie Hart, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you about this because I think that it's, you know, to understand exactly what food waste is, I think is really important because I don't think everybody understands it. But before we jump into that, can you just explain exactly a little bit about what ReFed does? Sure. So, you know, as you said, ReFed's a nonprofit. We work nationally and we do kind of three main things. We provide a lot of the data and insights for the sector. So helping people understand really what is this problem of food waste and then how do we solve it? So we really analyze all the solutions, how much it's going to cost, who needs to do what and so on. We do a lot of work also in the capital and innovation space, so helping bring new solutions to bear and moving money into the sector. There's a lot of financing needed to bring solutions to life. And then we also do a lot of work around stakeholder engagement. This is a problem that is not going to be solved by one person or one organization or even a thousand organizations working alone. We need to do this together. And so we do a lot of work around convening, connecting, and bringing different people from different areas of the ecosystem to the table. So just to kind of define a little bit deeper in that, you said stakeholder engagement. Who are the stakeholders? Oh, man, it's everyone from across the food system. So that's policymakers, the food industry, and that really encompasses everyone from farmers and producers to the manufacturers, the transportation industry, restaurants, retail, food service, and then us, the consumers. Right. So really everyone who's involved in handling our food. Everybody's a stakeholder. <laughs> All of us. We talk about food waste in our food system. What exactly is it that we're talking about? I mean, we kind of touched on it there a little bit, but like grocery stores, restaurants, people, things that get damaged. I mean, is it a problem like that or is it, are we just so efficient in how we grow food? We grow too much. Little column A, little column B, really. Um, food waste does happen at every single point in the supply chain from farm to consumer. And then when it gets handled and gone on to the waste, waste management system. But when we talk about food waste, we're talking about food that maybe it's spoiled and gone bad before someone got to eat it. Maybe it's food that didn't get harvested ever because it didn't meet spec and had to be tilled under. So it might even be food that's just left on the farm. It might be rejected from the retail um, and didn't even make it off the truck. It might be food that's left on your plate after a meal because that portion size was just too large. You know, I'm from Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. Um, and our portion sizes have grown an insane amount uh, really since the 1970s. It's those plate scraps. Um, it's that food that, you know, some of us are, are fortunate enough to like have dogs or chickens that we can throw out to them at the end of the day. But it's, it's really everything. It's, it's the food that goes down the sewer. 
So we're talking like a much bigger scope than just, oh, we made a little too much macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese is an easy one because everyone's going to eat that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how big is the problem? I mean, can you explain in a way that people can wrap their heads around? Because it is such a massive problem. Yes. So we see about 35% of our food going kind of unsold, uneaten in one way or another, kind of like we just talked about. But to put that into some perspective, you know, one way to look at it is if you go to the grocery store, you've got three bags full of beautiful, fresh, delicious groceries. You just drop one of those and you carry the other two to your car and you just say sayonara third bag of groceries and you don't even think about it. We're just throwing away, you know, one out of every three bag of groceries that we're buying. You know, and then another really massive way to think about it is the amount of waste that we're producing with our food waste is about half a million blue whales or half a million Boeing 747s. (laughs) Wow. It's like trying to explain and have people comprehend space. It's just such a big thing. You can't fully comprehend it. Sounds like a lot of this is re-education or just education period on the entire subject. Mm -hmm. Of course, as you said, takes money because education for people is one of the hardest things that actually is ever to do. Oh, absolutely. And and consumer education is one of actually the most cost-effective solutions to food waste. It's something that really needs to be worked on. But just like you said, it's one of the hardest things to do because behavior change is incredibly difficult. Whether we're talking about food waste, whether we're talking about water efficiency, energy efficiency, or or even, you know, a non-environmental topic. It's just hard because we have our ways. It's cultural change. And then food itself is so connected to our culture, our upbringing, and that has even closer ties to kind of how and who we are. So that makes it even more difficult to change. Um, So yeah, it's a, a tough one, but we have seen some really interesting projects be successful there. Funny, you talk about it being cultural. I never thought about it like that, but you're so right. Like I grew up down south and you know, like I wasn't allowed to leave the table till my whole plate was empty. And whether you wanted it or whether you liked it, nobody asked you if you liked it, just eat it. But now like I don't make my kids finish their plates now. Maybe I should. Yep. Gotta make them eat that last bit of mac and cheese. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what do you think the major impact of all this food waste is? One humongous component is climate. And we're starting to see more of these conversations around food waste, around agriculture in general and climate come together. You know, about 4% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions are directly because of food waste. 4% doesn't sound like a big number, but when you think about the overall climate challenge, there's got to be so many solutions coming to play to get us to hit our Paris Accord goals and, and, you know, even come under those. Those are the goals to keep temperature rise under 1.5 degrees Celsius. So there's an incredible amount of greenhouse gases that can be baited or mitigated through food waste solutions. And one huge component of that is methane. You know, people might be hearing more and more talk going on about methane. It's a short-lived climate pollutant, which is basically a, a super pollutant. When organic waste rots in landfills, it releases methane. And that's exactly what food waste does. So it's a, a terrible component of our climate challenge. Um, and then it also contributes to things like water use. We have these incredible droughts going on over in the west of the country, for instance, uh, not to mention what's happening globally, where we're seeing desertification across Africa. 
we're taking up a lot of water. We use about 14% of our fresh water that goes directly to food waste. Wow. It uses about 20% of our cropland is food waste. Wow. Not just agriculture, the waste. So it's it's using a lot of resources. 14% is a lot. I had no idea. Yep. <laughs> That's crazy. How do we square the amount of food that's wasted with the fact that one in eight Americans experience food insecurity? And what do you see as a disconnect? Well, simply we don't square it. It's an incredible tragedy that we have this juxtaposition of you know surplus food, of all this uneaten food, food going to waste, and then our neighbors are hungry. And one of the many solutions to addressing these kind of juxtaposed crises is that there's so much edible food that's being wasted that could be redirected into the donation system or into secondary markets um, and still be feeding people. There's an enormous amount of this food that's still edible. Um, that's not just, you know, carrot tops or, you know, icky little trims of things. There's a lot of work going on in that space, but frankly, you know, our food donation system and our food banking systems are pretty archaic. Some innovations that we're seeing in that space are organizations that are really taking tech-enabled solutions. They're taking guidance from, you know, human-centered design, and they're looking at ways that they can simply be more responsive to their beneficiaries and looking at them as clients, not just people who need help, but looking at them as clients and people with dignity and using things like Uber type apps. You know, how can we take inspiration from, you know, the private sector and where things like technology are really enabling mass um, engagement from, you know, people who want to get involved and drive around or volunteer and be hands on with people and tap into that energy and have them be helping out with donations rather than these kind of older systems that really just don't work as well. We're also seeing a lot of trends in getting more fresh food and healthier food into food banking systems, which is amazing because, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was canned food drives. You know, I remember being in, in grade school and, and running some of those myself. Bring a can of food, just, you know, go to the roller skating rink and skate for free for a can of food. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. And we need more fresh food. We need culturally appropriate food. We need that to be accompanied with education, you know, going back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier and making sure that, you know, if someone gets a bok choy and they've never seen that before, that they know how to approach it. They know how to cook it. They know what to expect from it. And it's not just something that's kind of like frightening or weird that's going to get thrown away again. Again, back to the education part. Yeah. And so... There's just no way to square it. And we saw a ton of this with COVID. One really stark example where we saw food just piling up on farms. And then, you know, two blocks away, there'd be miles long lines of folks waiting in line at the food bank for the first time in their life. Right. It's just appalling that we have those two challenges. You know, we've got a lot of people working on it, but it's one where we need more resources and people to be moving faster, in my personal opinion. Yeah, you know, what I just don't understand, Katie, is like you know, me, I'm a chef. Like I've worked in massive hotels doing extraordinary amounts of food. But our local governments and, and regulations make it hard to even donate this food. 
back to the mac and cheese just to pick something. If I have three extra trays of mac and cheese that have never been touched, I can't just give that to a homeless shelter. I can't just give that away. They don't let you. Why is that? It really varies. So there is a, a federal protection in place. Um, the Bill Emerson Act went into law in 1996, and that does protect, again, civil liability for donations of food. Um, and so like if you donated something and someone got sick, you are protected. And so there is kind of a big gap in education around that. And there's also a gap in capacity building around that to help people understand how to donate that properly. The example you just shared, sometimes there's just simply not the extra resources for someone to be able to make sure that gets, you know, down to temperature, stored appropriately, then back up to temperature at the right times. You know, it's the same things you'd be doing in your kitchen as a chef anyways, you know, exactly how you'd be treating food you'd be serving to customers. Right. But maybe folks don't have, you know, an extra place to store that and then they don't have someone to come at the right time. Um, so those donation partner relationships are so key. And something as simple as having a donation partner that can come two or three more times a week or that can come, you know, on demand can make all the difference. Um, and it's about having those really strong relationships. There are some states and some municipalities that are working on enhanced donation protections, including some that allow for like the sale of goods after donation, some that are covering costs of transportation for donation. So we're seeing a little bit of movement in that space. But again, I agree with you. It's one that needs more work, more action from our policymakers and from the education side again. Yeah, 100%. So on this show, we feature lots of local farms and restaurants and owners and chefs. What are the three things farmers, chefs could do right now that would make the biggest difference in terms of reducing waste? For farmers, um, one is identifying alternative markets. So this might mean finding new innovative solution providers that are doing secondary sales and perfect food channels, thinking about ways that they can get some of that food harvested and purchased, not thinking about just donating and having that food come off their farm for free. We always want to think about how we're paying our farmers as well. We've seen solutions coming on farm and processing product into powders, things like that, you know, right on the farm and to create new products. Oh, cool. Also new buyer arrangements. And this is another area where I think consumers are starting to become more amenable to maybe that apple is slightly smaller or slightly bigger than the apple next to it. People are starting to realize like heirloom tomatoes are gorgeous. They're not perfect. They don't look like a little round bouncy ball. And that's totally okay. Looking at new contract types like whole crop purchasing. So there's some really innovative work that could be done with contracting for farmers. Um, so those are two in particular I'd, I'd call out for our farmers. And then thinking about our chefs more specifically, there's, you know, there's a lot of different things chefs could be doing one in particular is tracking waste. There's a, a popular adage in this space is, you know, you can't manage what you don't measure. Whether that's, you know, throwing a, a bin on the counter and, you know, you put all the trim in there and you guys say, like, we filled up two bins today, we want to get it down to one next week. And just being aware, you know, I've done that in my own house and it's really helpful. 
you know, you can plan a little bit better. You can save costs. Maybe there's knife skills that need to be improved because you're trimming things um, not as efficiently as possible. And visually seeing it probably is incredibly helpful too. Oh yeah, and and you can like see what's what's going in. Like maybe it's okay, we're producing too much mac and cheese. People really aren't buying that, and you're probably already doing that naturally as a chef. But seeing it there and having your team all see it there is so impactful. You know, I've I've worked in restaurants too, and like getting everyone on board. And I'd, I'd imagine nobody in your kitchen wants to be wasting food. They're all probably like, I want to eat that. Hey, I feel like mac and cheese is really getting a bad rap on this show. Mac and cheese doesn't deserve any of the heat we're giving it. No, well, I, I think we're, I feel like we're advocating for eating mac and cheese. Um, <laughs> Maybe we are. Hey, you know, so over the over the cold months here in Connecticut, my wife and I and my family, we subscribe to a thing called Misfits Market. Oh, awesome. Which sends us... You know, vegetables that aren't perfect or apples that are a little bit small, like you said, mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, a, a carrot that has a little ding in it, but they're all fine. It's still great produce. So I think those are cool options to look at, too. And which leads me to average people. I mean, everyday eaters. What can we do? I'd say also tracking our waste. One of my favorite things to tell people to do, not as often as um, we used to, do we have receipts, but whether it's, you know, something you print out from the internet, from your Misfits Market purchase. I actually use Imperfect Foods, which is a very similar um, similar, subscription. Um, But, you know, save your receipts and, you know, put it up on the fridge and highlight or circle what you don't use or what goes to waste. And so it's that same practice of keeping track of what you're not using so that you can improve your shopping and planning going forward. And then get creative, Uh, You know, you're a chef, so you're probably a little bit better at this than the average person. But, you know, I've grown up in a time where like we didn't have home ec. You know, we weren't really taught to go explore in the kitchen, giving people that license that you can throw anything in an omelet. You can put whatever you want on a pizza and it is perfectly fine. And like, maybe your first one's going to be a little weird and you might have a couple failures, but that's part of the process. Yeah. And like encouraging people to kind of like try things out and get creative. Like most things can go in a smoothie. Almost anything can be frozen. Your freezer is your best friend. Like getting a little educated on how to store things in your fridge and your freezer is just so amazing. Baked pastas, frittatas, all of your leftover scraps can go in these things. It's, it's easy. Yes. Katie Hart, we can't thank you enough for your time joining us here on Seasoned. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Chef Plum. That was Katie Hart. She's the operations director at the national nonprofit ReFed. You can learn more about solutions to our food waste problem by visiting refed.org. R-E-F-E-D dot org. Later in the hour, we talk with a New York chef doing exactly what Katie just outlined as a potential solution. He helps chefs figure out the logistics of donating excess food from their restaurants to hunger-fighting organizations in their communities. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, a familiar voice, Patrick Scahill. He shares his reporting on the state of food waste in Connecticut and how one company is working to turn some of Meriden's food waste into energy. We're going to geek out about, ready for this, anaerobic digesters, and I cannot wait. Kind of think of it as a giant cow stomach, right? This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're talking about food waste this hour, both the problems and potential solutions. In our first segment, we got a sense for how much food waste we produce as a country and the role it plays in our climate crisis and our complex food system. On a local level, there's a trash crisis looming, and food waste is a huge component of that trash. Where is all our food waste going now? And where might it go in the future? You might not immediately think about the answers to these questions in the context of environmental justice, but our next guest will help us understand why we should. Marisol talked with Connecticut Public's Patrick Scahill about his reporting on food waste and an experimental recycling program in Meriden, where food scraps are sorted and turned into energy and compost. Patrick Scahill, welcome to Seasoned. Hi, thank you. Your beat is science and the environment, and your reporting for the New England News Collaborative has brought you up close and personal with heaps of rotting food at food waste dump sites in Southington, Connecticut. So we're hoping you can help us understand the food waste situation in our own state and in a few neighboring states. I know this is not, you didn't necessarily want to associate your name with rotting food, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, organics and uh, food waste uh, really are emerging as a uh, really big way that we can reduce what we throw out. So um, the EPA estimates uh, in 2018, uh, which was the latest sort of estimate they did on uh, our waste stream uh, nationwide, that more food reached landfills and uh, combustion facilities, incineration facilities, than really any other material uh, in our everyday trash. Um, And state officials have looked at this here in Connecticut, too, There was a 2015 waste characterization study that the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection did, which estimated that about one quarter of all the trash uh, that's thrown away by residents in Connecticut consists of food. And if you want to break that down in terms of tonnage, it's about more than 500,000 tons per year of food are being thrown away here um, at the state level. Then if you look at the individual house, which is you know something that I'm always curious about. Um, it's about eight pounds uh, for for each house, um, which doesn't sound like a, a lot, but sounds like a think, lot to me, right? And especially <laughs> when you scale it, right? When you think, right. you know, even just think the you know the block you live on, the apartment building that you live on, um, that it gets to be a lot of material really, really fast that is uh, being thrown out and not eaten. So I know you've done a great deal of reporting on this, and I lament the fact that you and I have never met in the flesh, yet we both (laughs) have the same employer. Um, But as I I was reading this article where you take this deep dive, and it it talks about right off the top that there is a delineation between the the, the packaging of the waste. You know, the green plastic was compostable and, and and the orange was just trash. I wonder if you could bring me back to that day where you were there and you saw all of this. What was your initial thought? Um, were you surprised by what you saw, aghast? Um, I wonder if you could just walk us through that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as we were saying, a, a lot of the stuff we throw out is organics, is food. So state officials now are really kind of scrambling for a way to figure out, well, how can we reclaim that food? Because it can have value. Um, it can have value for things like compost. It can have value for even producing things like electricity through a big device called an anaerobic digester, which is something that can basically take in food and then turn out power on the other side. Um, so the state really now is looking for ways to to get access to this resource. They really are viewing it not as trash, but as, as a resource we can reclaim. What uh, the state is doing right now is a pilot program, a food waste recycling program. Uh, it's being done in the city of Meriden in Connecticut. Uh, it's involving about 1,000 households. 
And uh, what they're doing is, as you were describing, um, they're giving these households two types of bags. There's green bags um, for the organics waste, and then there's orange bags for the regular trash. Uh, both the bags go in your curbside trash can, so you can, uh, throughout the week, put your food waste uh, in a little container uh, in your kitchen, dump it in that green bag, put that green bag in your trash can with the orange bag that then gets sent off to uh, a sorting facility uh, in Southington. And when I was there, I mean, you know, you get a sense for how much stuff this is when you see it, right? Um, the numbers are one thing, but when you see piles and piles of, of trash everywhere, it really sort of hits home that A, there is a lot of this stuff, and B, you know, if we are viewing this as a resource for, uh, for compost or for energy going forward, it, it really is an untapped resource, and it's a place where the state could make a lot of ground. We're talking about the state of food waste, specifically in our in our state of Connecticut. And my understanding is that MIRA, or MIRA, the Materials Innovation and Recycling Authority, is set to close down. And so lots of folks in towns across the state are trying to figure out what to do with their waste if it can no longer be processed. Um, and so can you help us understand how food waste has become sort of a tentacle of social justice? Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned the Materials Innovation and Recycling Authority in Hartford. So this is a, a waste energy facility. It's a trash incinerator that's been operating for decades uh, in Hartford. Uh, it's taken in hundreds of thousands of tons of garbage from uh, dozens of member communities, uh, including Hartford um, and other towns in the region. And uh, that facility is going to close. And honestly, it could close any day. Um, it's had a, a lot of mechanical issues. Leadership there has not expressed a lot of confidence about sort of the long-term viability of the plant. Originally, it was scheduled to close in um, uh, June, July of this year. They're now saying maybe next year at the latest. But the reality is it's going away. And that means the infrastructure to handle this stuff is going away. And this is where we sort of get to the the environmental justice component. So um, when the infrastructure to handle this trash within our state borders is lessened, we don't have places to send this garbage which means that garbage is going to probably go on a truck or probably going to go on a train and get sent out to the Midwest to another community. So we're essentially exporting our garbage to another community, right? There's a lot of potential problems with that, both environmental um, and social problems. Uh, and state leaders have, have raised that issue. Why should we be putting the burden of our waste, our waste footprint on another community? Um, how is that fair? How is that just? Also, it costs a lot of money to do that. And that's been you know, the real concern that a lot of town leaders have raised, which is, well, our tipping fees, which is the amount they're paying to get rid of their trash, they're going up because it's taking a lot more money, it's taking a lot more time and energy to handle this stuff and get rid of it. So enter Meriden, Connecticut, and this project that's happening now, which is a pilot program, is that correct? Right, so uh, Meriden is working with uh, the state to pilot this food waste recycling program. Again, it's about 1,000 households in a certain part of Meriden are taking part in this program. Um, and they're given these uh, two bags, the green bag for the food waste, the orange bag for their trash. They're able to put both of those bags into their curbside um, uh, trash can. Uh, trash truck comes, picks it up, sends it to a sorting facility. Uh, they go through it. And the state really is trying to gauge from this, you know, a, how many people are actually going to do this uh, of the 1,000 households that are participating? Uh, what's the participation rate going to be like? And B, just you know, how much food waste is being diverted by each individual house? 
they're still working on part A. For part B, they're kind of getting a sense of that, and they're finding that it's about eight pounds per week uh, for each house is food waste. I understand when you went to visit, you got up close and personal with anaerobic digesters. What on earth is that, and why should we care? <laughs> yeah, right. Why should we care? <laughs> um, so uh, anaerobic digesters, and I promise I won't get too geeky here, although I love getting geeky about this stuff. I love so, it. I love it. <laughs> uh, it was described to me best several years ago um, by uh, Brian Paganiti, who is one of the folks with uh, Quantum Biopower, and they run an anaerobic digester in Southington. Kind of think of it as a giant cow stomach, right? So an anaerobic digester essentially takes uh, old food and it um, puts it in a big, big metal container. And then in the absence of oxygen, there's bacteria and microbes in there that kind of break that food waste down. Um, that food waste releases biogas, and there's a few different kind of components in that biogas. But the main point there is that you can use that gas to produce electricity. And that's what they do at Quantum. So they can use that gas to turn a turbine and, and produce some power that they can then sell back into the grid. On top of that, anaerobic digesters can also, um, they produce, it's kind of a gross word, digestate. <laughs> um, Not digestate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, and that's uh, something that can be really good uh, as a compost or soil amendment. Um, so you can uh, sell that as well. So you can get energy out of it and you can get uh, this nice soil amendment, um, which you can then use to uh, maybe grow more food in the future. I mean, Patrick, it sounds like a fantastic solution. Is there a downside to any of this? And why aren't more cities and towns and states participating in this? So it sounds great. Um, money is, mm. I, I think, the, the simple answer there, right? So it, it costs money to build these projects. Uh, there's investors that need to be attracted and convinced that they're going to make money or at least not you know sustain a, a huge loss when they when they do these types of projects connecticut has had a statewide food waste recycling law for for a while now for several years this is a law that really applies to large-scale producers of food waste so think like restaurants or hospitals um, they're mandated to recycle that food waste uh, if they produce a certain amount of tonnage um, each week and they're located within 20 miles of one of these uh, anaerobic digestion facilities or another type of facility like that that can take that waste. So far, there's really only one spot, the spot in Southington, that can do that right now. So the, the food waste law, again, was sort of structured here in Connecticut as a if you build it, they will come type law. Mm. Uh, the law was put on the books. The thought was, you know, these facilities would be built. But back to your original question, again, it, money has sort of been the hang up there. Um, the numbers just haven't penciled out for investors who want to build these types of projects where they can feel confident that they're going to get the amount of food waste they need to power these facilities and also that they're going to be able to sell the power that they produce at a rate that's going to make them the money they need to recoup their losses for, for building the structure to begin with. I want to key on something you said that, that perhaps state officials or federal officials or the, the people that are holding the money bag don't think that there's enough food waste to actually produce the power. As someone independent, as a journalist, what is your thinking of that? You know, when I'm always, and I'm always, you know, I'm the cynical journalist. I'm always leery when, <laughs> when well, people in yeah, power I mean, say one thing and, you know, and I'm looking at heaps and heaps of garbage and food waste. I, that, that's a great question. So I think, you know, the, the statistics show the food waste is there, right? Again, the EPA in 2018 estimated more food reached landfills uh, and waste energy facilities than any other material in our trash. Uh, the state is saying about a quarter of our, our waste stream is is food waste, uh, about you know over half a million tons a, a year is food waste. So the food waste is there. 
the bigger question really is a consumer behavior question in my mind. It's how do you train people like we did in the 90s with blue bins and recycling to separate their food waste into a separate container and make sure it gets to one of these facilities? And that takes time. And you know, if we look around the region, Connecticut might be a little bit slower to um, get consumers to adopt that type of behavior than other parts of of the region. But if you look at you know at other parts of New England, again, say you know Massachusetts, there's a, a lot of these anaerobic digestion facilities have been brought online, and they are taking in the food waste. I mean, I would say again, the material is there. If you're able to convince consumers to recycle it. That's part of it. And also, you know, towns need to be on board with this too, right? So if you look in Connecticut, right now the state is in a, a trash crisis, frankly. This major trash burning facility in Hartford that has taken in so much garbage for so many years is going to be going offline. And that's going to drive up costs for everyone when that infrastructure goes away. Because when that's gone, the waste is going to go on a trucker train out to the Midwest and that costs a lot of money. So cities and towns, you know, are, are doing some soul searching now to say like, okay, you know, how can we kind of triage this right now in the, in the short term when the Materials Innovation and Recycling Authority, that place in Hartford goes offline, how can we control costs? And now they're thinking, well, okay, maybe if we get some food waste out of the bin, that makes the trash can less heavy and it makes fewer stuff on the truck. Mm. And that will, I don't think it's going to reverse the cost ex- escalation that cities and towns are seeing, but it might help contain it. One of the things you you mentioned in your reporting, Patrick, is that the state of Connecticut actually lags behind a lot of states when it comes to finding uh, productive solutions for food waste. What were some of the lessons? Are there some lessons that Connecticut has learned from our neighboring states in New England? Yeah. So um, I guess if you look at our neighbors to the north, Massachusetts, they've always been a little bit uh, ahead of us on the food waste recycling uh, issue. One of, and that's both at the state level and at the city level. Um, So one thing that's happened up in Massachusetts is some cities are actually implementing curbside composting programs, um, which are similar to the pilot project that's happening now in Meriden, Connecticut. But up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for example, uh, they're entering into uh, year five now of a citywide curbside composting program there where residents can uh, put their food waste out uh, with their trash um, when they have their pickup. And they're seeing about seven tons of food scraps are collected each day just in that city alone that are then, you know, getting sent off and and being reclaimed. So that's a lot of food waste. And city leaders there have said, well, you know, it's great for us because it's a lot cheaper to dispose of compost materials than it is, you know, your your regular run-of-the-mill municipal solid waste trash. Um, So they love the cost savings there. Other spots in the region, Rhode Island has a statewide uh, food waste diversion law. Massachusetts has a a pretty strict one statewide as well, which apply to commercial producers. So again, these sort of large-scale hospitals, producers like that, cafeterias, uh, large cafeterias and things like that. Um, Vermont's gone really far ahead on this issue. They've actually... Shocking. Vermont, shocking that they would go (laughs) the extra mile. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm sure people in Vermont will love to hear you say that. They've essentially banned businesses and residents from putting old food in in trash cans and in landfills. There's some exceptions for that. For example, if you're you're composting at home in uh, Vermont, can be difficult to compost meat in your in your in your backyard trash bin because it can bring in animals. So you're allowed to throw uh, you know meat scraps and things into the trash can. But they've gone really really far on that. 
And right now, the the only two states that don't have statewide uh, bans that that apply, you know, sort of at the commercial or in Vermont's case at, at an even deeper level, are uh, New Hampshire and Maine in um, in this region. But you know, that doesn't mean the demand isn't there. Uh, we've seen a lot of these independent programs pop up where consumers can sort of you know sign up to do this on their own if they want this food right. waste recycling on their own. Right. Yeah. No. I I definitely see food waste recycling throughout, even just in Lower Fairfield County, but it's you know. One small community. I mean, we're talking about the entire state, never mind the entire lower 48, um, which is daunting. I'm glad I'm not tasked with trying to figure out (laughs) the food waste problem. Uh, But I do want to get back to some of the solutions uh, involve money making or entrepreneurship. And I would love for you to talk to us about garbage to garden in Maine. Our colleague, Ryan Karen King, profiled a compost entrepreneur right here in New Haven. So tell us what you know about Domingo Medina. Happy to talk a bit about uh, Domingo Medina. So he runs a food uh, scrap collecting uh, business in New Haven. And he's spent a lot of time, I think since 2014, uh, biking around uh, the city collecting food scraps, him and his team. And he runs a business called Peels and Wheels Composting. Uh, they're on these bikes, and hanging off the back of the bike is a big trailer where they're, uh, they put the food waste uh, that people uh, give to them, and then they go to a spot, and Ryan Karen King really chronicled this with a, a fantastic video um, and some wonderful photos uh, where uh, he composts the stuff, and then he returns the compost to uh, residents who subscribe to the service, and he donates some of it to uh, community gardens in New Haven. So it's a really fun valuable service that really has taken off uh, down uh, in New Haven. And then if we do a quick hop, skip, and jump all the way up to Maine, there's a similar business up there, uh, which is a little bit uh, larger, called uh, Garbage to Garden. This started in uh, 2012 um, up in Portland. The head of the company, Tyler Frank, you know, when he started this uh, back in 2012, he had, I think, like 17 people signed up. But then um, each month after that, it was hundreds and hundreds of people uh, were signing up. Uh, fast forward to today, he has uh, 15,000 weekly subscribers. The company is processing uh, 20 tons of food waste each day. And again, they're doing something similar to Domingo where they're taking the food scraps and um, composting it. So the demand is there. Mm-hmm. It's really just a question of kind of scaling that demand up region-wide and, and getting towns and, and states on board to ensure that you know consumers are getting those food scraps out of their trash and and trying to reclaim some of the the resource that is there. That was our colleague, Patrick Scahill. Go to our show page for a link to Patrick's story, where you can see pictures of his visit to a food waste dump site in Southington and a really informative video of Domingo Medina and his team collecting food scraps and turning them into what he calls a nice, crumbly compost that's ready for your garden. Go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, you'll meet a chef whose innovation around food donation is an inspiration to all of us in the hospitality industry who care about connecting people with the nourishing food they need. Well, we really believe that every restaurant, big or small, can get involved. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. It's a safe bet that no one thinks more about food waste on a daily basis than the people who cook all day, every day, for a living. 
Now, aside from the fact that throwing food away feels like throwing money away, which doesn't make a whole lot of business sense, chefs live to feed people. Tossing excess food goes against that impulse that we feel to nourish people with our work. Our next guest decided to do something about the food waste he saw in restaurants. Matt Joswiak founded Rethink Food in 2017, and it's evolved quite a bit since then. Rethink Food now partners with more than 115 chefs and restaurants in New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, Nashville, D.C., and Miami to make the logistics of food donation a little easier. Rethink Food's mission is to create a more sustainable and equitable food system where everyone has access to high-quality, nutritious, and affordable food. Because of Rethink's efforts, six million meals, and counting, have been prepared with rescued food for people experiencing food insecurity. Chef Plum talked with Matt about his work and his mission. You know, I've always been excited to talk to you on the show since we first got it. I mean, you and I have been friends for a little while now, and uh, I've always been inspired by what you do. But back in the day, you were a dishwasher with a dream, and you've cooked at some of the finest restaurants in the world, right? Yeah, I was a, I, you know, um, the first kind of job I had was washing dishes at a little restaurant in Kansas. And I learned a lot from my first chef and, you know, kind of the traditional culinary road, you know, you get, you get in and you want to go to Garmage and prep, and then you end up on the hotline. And it's just like, I think every cook just like couldn't stop and wanted to learn and do more. And then I ended up having the opportunity to move across the country and even go to France for a while and cook at some great restaurants got to work at Noma for a season, which was really incredible in Copenhagen. Ooh. The last fine dining kitchen I was in was uh, 11 Madison Park in New York City. Only some of the best restaurants ever in the entire universe. I mean, I've never been to a restaurant on Mars, but I'm guessing they probably look at these <laughs> and think they're amazing. Yeah, no, I lucked out. I mean, I, I really lucked out. I've been lucky enough to meet some great people that have helped guide my career. And yeah, I got to do some cool stuff. But in working in these restaurants, you got inspired by seeing how much waste there was, right? Yeah, I think, you know, it, and, and those are the fancy restaurants I worked at. But I also worked at the equivalent of a Panera in Milwaukee, a steakhouse, a bar, you know, like, and it's just the food system just kind of doesn't click right in a lot of ways. And there's always excess in some capacity from, you know, the sides of the carrots when you're trying to make like perfect grunoise to like, oh, no, we ordered one too many cases of broccoli and we're, you know, we use some for staff and we're not sure what to do with it. And the next Monday we're the trucks rolling around again. So it was always just kind of interesting to me that there's this disconnect between restaurants and the local community centers and that restaurants aren't treated the same way that community centers are because they really are, right? Like you meet there, you meet people, people can learn language skills by working there, your entry level jobs into the economy, they do really wonderful things. And we're trying to explore that and share that how beautiful restaurants actually are makes a lot of sense i mean the restaurants were my family growing up that's what that's what it was you know well we mentioned rethink's mission in the intro a little bit how exactly is rethink food chipping away at food insecurity in the communities it serves yeah so we do it through two pretty specific ways uh, it's all under the brand of rethink certified but we work with businesses to, uh, they raise money for us, like Michael Schwartz in Miami, uh, Michael's Genuine, or Daniel Hume in, in New York. And we give that money to small local businesses in the communities that we serve. And we sponsor them to use their food waste and to make meals for local community centers. So not only are we helping them use all their excess food and make you know, three, 400 meals a week for their local church or whatever the, the situation might be, we're also, you know, helping with cash so they can hire more people, uh, improve their storefront, cover some of their baseline costs, rent, those kinds of things to help them that way. That's the equitable part. We're saying, you know, by 
spending the dollars in these communities would, would be more equitable. And then the sustainable part of our system is we actually work with incredible companies to remove all of their excess from, uh, we work with Brookfield Properties and they have a huge area, Manhattan West, that has uh, Whole Foods and a bunch of restaurants. And we're working to create a place where we're collecting all of the excess from there, making meals of it, making meals out of it and distributing it to local community centers. And that was kind of the original Rethink Foods was that picking up this excess food and repurposing it, right? Yep, that was the original. That was the the first, yeah, model one, yeah, version version one. And then throughout the uh, pandemic, basically, you came up with the idea of having other restaurants create this food, right? Yeah, it was like it was really sensical. You know, it was like we were we had a bunch of restaurant community centers that had very specific culturally celebrated meals that they were looking for, and it was hard. You know, we couldn't we didn't have the capacity to cook kosher food. We didn't have the capacity to cook halal food. So we, uh, we didn't have the expertise to cook really solid Chinese food. Right. So we had, we found really great businesses in the neighborhoods that we work with to help us do that. And then we realized like, this is so much better <laughs> than trying to do this all of ourselves and the restaurants really want to do it. So it worked out in a really beautiful way. There, there were some silver linings from COVID as hard as it was. So how did the early days of the pandemic change the way you thought about how Rethink Food could fulfill its mission? Uh, like the number of food insecure people increased dramatically and like your sources of food and donation probably decreased dramatically. How'd you stay focused on solutions? Well, I mean, I think that we were in the position that not a lot of people were in where people really, you know, um, like we work predominantly with restaurants and, and um, a lot of food rescue organizations, you know, focus on larger things. And so we were right at the intersection between restaurants and community centers. And I think that there's like, we, we grew like TEDx and, and, but the thing is, is, is that was great, but like, there's a difference between like being like, I'm ready to grow the organization. I'm going to go out and I'm going to raise money and I'm going to grow it. And I'm going to do X, Y, Z to like, we had to scale. And like, there was a time when we were like, just like, it was so necessary. The need was so incredible. There was eight weeks that unemployment checks were backed up and community centers are largely run by folks over 65 years or older. And so a quarter or more of the community centers shut down. So it was insane in New York City. And the crazy thing is, is there was no reporters that were going out because they weren't considered essential workers. And so nobody saw the craziness that was New York for that eight weeks. And um, we, yeah, we were kind of forced into to scaling, but it led us to really be very intentful about what we did. It was kind of trial by fire. Rethink Food had made a big impact in such a short time. What's next? Are there opportunities to expand it even bigger? Yeah. So this is what, you know, our website, RethinkFood.org, has opportunities for restaurants to get involved, corporate partners to get involved, or just donors who just want to donate to the mission. But we really believe that every restaurant, big or small, can get involved, whether that's you're making 20 extra meals for your local community center, or you're a pizza place down the street that makes like three extra pies and drops them off at like an eight bed shelter. We can build this network of restaurants and community in a really thoughtful way. And, and part of what we're really pushing is to rebrand the industry in a way that shows that it's full of thoughtful, kind, warm, incredible people that are all trying to do something good. Very well said, for sure. And when chefs tell you they're interested in decreasing food waste, I mean, I think all chefs are, even from a financial standpoint, to just trying to do better in the world. What advice do you give them? You know, everybody writes order guides and stuff like that. And I never see waste guides. 
first step with it is be vulnerable. And like on, on, on anything I like to tell people, like I actually on Sunday threw away two heads of broccoli out of my fridge because I did not get to cook them and they were bad. I will admit that everybody makes a mistake. <laughs> and like when I make a note of it and when I'm doing like grocery shopping, I will buy less broccoli next time. So it's important to be really vulnerable about like where you're at, what you're wasting, what's going in the trash, and then looking at it and just write it down on the other side of your order guide. And when you see that like, oh yeah, like we don't need two cases of cilantro, we'll be fine with one. It'll really drive your behavior to different things. Matt Joswiak, we can't thank you enough for your time. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's really kind of you to have me on. And um, yeah, when you're in New York, let me know. That was Matt Joswiak. He's the founder and CEO of Rethink Food based in New York. To find out more, visit RethinkFood.org. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen Aiken, Katie Talarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Yes, the season team has gotten bigger, so expect some really great shows as we slide into summer. To keep up with the latest on season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. You can always follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people doing really important work in the food world. See you next week.